A few weeks ago, the Chancellor presided over a spring budget which ushered in the fastest drop in living standards on record, as he told us that we can't protect everyone. But this week, it was revealed that his wife has avoided paying around 20 million in tax due to her non-dom status. Accused of rank hypocrisy by Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak's popularity has certainly been dented. If it now transpires that his wife has been using schemes to reduce her own tax, then I'm afraid that is breathtaking hypocrisy. I have to say, I was beginning to wonder about whether Rishi Sunak was in touch with the real world and with perceptions in the real world. When this man, who is so conscious of his Instagram image and so on, was photographed wearing £300 trainers at a time when he was telling everybody that it's going to be tough out there. And right now we have a chancellor of the Exchequer living in a household where he fully well knows that he doesn't have to live, he doesn't have to live those sort of challenges that we are facing right now. And that's, that, that's what just hurts me so much, you know, about this. The Sunak family hasn't broken the law, but what does that say about the laws that govern who has to pay tax? What's wrong with our tax system? When the Chancellor can raise taxes on working people on the one hand and benefit from tax avoidance on the other. And what would fairer taxes really look like? Welcome to the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, what does the Sunak scandal tell us about our tax system? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. It can't be right that if you earn your income from a wage, you pay about twice the tax than if you earn your income from stocks and shares. So we need to look at all of this in the round. It gave you two policies which could be implemented tomorrow if the Chancellor wanted, which would bring in money immediately in a way that is fair. In all honesty, you're surprised that people think there's one set of rules for the rich people and one set of rules for someone else, when you've just told us that that's exactly what there is. No wonder people are pissed off. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Tom Peters, Head of Advocacy at Tax Justice UK. Hi, Tom. Hi, Aisha. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Thanks for being with us. I think it's going to be, we're definitely going to need your your wisdom as we kind of try to figure out our way through this very messy uh, scandal that I just out- outlined there in the intro. The Sunak uh, family, as I said, have been accused of avoiding tens of millions in taxes. And this was after it was revealed that Rishi Sunak's wife, um, Akshata Murti, claims non-DOM status. So could you start off, Tom, by just explaining what being a non-DOM means? Yeah, so this is a provision in our tax system that basically allows for someone to apply to have all of their non-UK earnings sort of struck off from from, from paying tax here on the basis that they don't have a lasting connection to the UK. It's a provision, it's an old colonial provision, actually, that stretches all the way back, I think, to 1799 to allow for basically the functioning of the colonies and that people could accumulate wealth in a colony and then travel to the to the centre of empire and not be sort of caught up in, in the tax affairs of, of, of Britain at that time. And so, yeah, it, it basically allows someone to be here in the UK, but not paying tax on their income from, from outside, of, outside of the UK. That sounds really interesting, the kind of colonial links to, um, uh, to our tax system at the moment. Um, is, there, is there a particular uh, source for finding out more about that? Yeah, so actually, uh, Dr. Koja Karam, who's um, 
uh, a lecturer in law at Birkbeck has just published a book called Uncommon Wealth. And that's really mapping out how our tax system was really developed actually in response to British Empire and actually one of the big sort of legacies of colonialism that still exists is in our tax system and is in the way, for example, that the British uh, state um, uh, establishes and maintains tax havens in our overseas territories, for example, and how those sort of means of of moving illicit finance and the financial flows through the city um, really are a sort of legacy of that history and uh, and continue to sort of reflect some of those processes and some of those histories that existed. And in fact, you know, part of, I think, um, the big challenge for the tax justice movement is, is you know, how do we begin to some, confront some of those legacies and how do we begin to raise this discussion and how do we begin to propose reforms that actually begin to challenge some of those colonial histories uh, that are still alive in our tax system today. Mm, interesting. I had no idea about the the colonial roots, but of course that makes so much sense. So Akshata Murti has been, hasn't been accused of breaking the law in any way. As you say, everything that she's done is technically legal. So why is it an issue? Why are people up in arms about it? Yeah, so you're right. There's no suggestion here of of, of tax eva- tax evasion, which is where you where you effectively break the law by trying to avoid by trying to not pay tax on your income. But I think you know if you asked most people in the street whether someone living in number eleven who is married to the Chancellor of the UK whether they have a sort of lasting connection to this country, um, they'd probably say that that person does, and that therefore it would be right that they should contribute tax on their earnings in the UK. So I think that there's a sort of basic principle here of fairness and of almost natural justice where people look at the situation and say, well, it doesn't really seem right for someone to be saying that they don't really have a connection here if they're living in in the second most recognised address in the country and and has such a direct relationship to a government minister. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was my next point. Keir Starmer has has said that having a non-dom spouse kind of inherently creates a very obvious conflict of interest for the Chancellor. So would you agree with that? Yeah, so this has sort of spilled over really into into further questions around the Chancellor's own tax affairs. So he himself has what's called a blind trust, which is where you wrap up all of your pre-existing investments and someone else looks after them for you when you take on a, a ministerial position. He also holds a green card to the United States, which gives him various rights over 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 across the Atlantic. And so this has become now quite quite a problem for the Chancellor in that people are beginning to ask lots of questions, not only about his wife's tax status, but also about his own personal affairs and, and whether they're appropriate given that he has such a leading role in setting the economic policy of this country. So until recently as well, Rishi Sunak had an American green card for permanent residents. So why was that so controversial? Yeah, so the green card doesn't seem to be an issue specifically around tax, but it's more around where he holds property and the way that he sort of declares himself when he's crossing the borders. So it's it's less about a tax avoidance question, but more about his own personal status. And also, I think this just plays into a more general image of the Chancellor as part of a sort of free-floating transnational elite who is very wealthy and maybe doesn't have a direct sort of connection um, 
uh, to to government policy in the way in, in the way others might, and you know can sort of float around the world freely between here and California, um, and and you know maybe isn't reflective of of, of the interests of the working people of the UK. Mm, yeah, I mean, in the bigger picture around this, what do you think this scandal for Rishi Sunak says about our tax system? I mean, it seems certainly from the discourse I've heard around it, what's really clearly coming through, as you've said, is this idea of one rule for one and run one rule for the other. Um, but is this, I guess, is this is this kind of the clearest example we've ever had of of the the, the thing that tax justice has said previously, which is that for the very richest, taxation is often voluntary. I think it certainly speaks speaks to those issues around, as you say, one rule for everyone and a different rule for for, for the minority. Um, and you know, the question really around the blind trust, particularly for the Chancellor, is: Well, well, where are those investments based? Has he been making use, for example, of um, tax havens and overseas territories? Are the rules being applied? fairly um, and and sort of evenly across everyone, regardless of how wealthy you are. And it's been pretty notable, actually, that the Labour Party has really picked up on that particular angle and is saying, well, you know, which other MPs on the Conservative backbenches might have used um, non-domicile status, which other MPs might have, um, for example, investments that are being channeled through tax havens or British overseas territories. So it has become a bit of a wider question now about well, what is appropriate for people in a p- position of leadership in this country to be to be doing. Okay, so let's take a step back um, because obviously Tax Justice UK has been operating long beyond this, uh, long before this particular scandal. So, in your opinion, then, why should we care about the tax system? Why does it matter that some people pay more tax than others? Yeah, so ultimately, you know, tax is the way that we distribute the value that we all sort of contribute to generating across our society. So, you know, we all are involved in producing goods and services. We're all involved in consuming goods and services. We all play sort of different roles in our society across our working lives and and afterwards. And so tax is a way to really to really take this this combined effort and say, well, what's the appropriate way that we try and distribute this across uh, between us? So in that sense, it's 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 sort of political question really about you know us all coming together, us all being involved in in creating the economy, and then us sort of deciding about where the, where the benefits of that go. The other question is around revenue. So you know, I think that most of the public really understand that the tax system is vital in terms of raising important funds that then go out to pay for our public services like the NHS. And I think that people really make that connection in their head of, you know, they pay tax and for that tax, they receive um, things that they value, such as, as I said, such as healthcare. There's also then a sort of a further question around, you know, how do we deal with stuff that we think might be negative behavior or how do we encourage positive behavior? And the tax system has a role in that. So one of the big challenges that we've been thinking about in Tax Justice UK is the climate crisis. And, you know, is there a role for the tax system in terms of perhaps raising the price of behaviors which we all accept now are bad in terms of being polluting? or indeed lowering the price of investment in the green transition or or things that we need to see as the as the climate crisis looms. And then the final thing I'd say is there's a question of representation here, you know, we 
we pay taxes and to the state, and that forms part of a sort of contract between our leaders and the citizenry. And for that, we expect you know certain services, or we expect them to behave in a certain way. And this really, you know, tax becomes a binding force within our society that that delivers you know representation by by our leaders and is an important sort of to and fro between um parliamentary and economic actors and the citizenry of our society so it's it sort of goes back to what i was saying earlier really that it forms a part of this sort of binding glue of our of our social settlement I want to come to each of those points in turn because I think that there's lots of really interesting things to unpack on each so on the first one um you know, in reference to, to what you were saying about the public services, obviously the biggest change to people's taxes uh, kicking in this month is the increase in national insurance. And the Chancellor has claimed that this is a, a levy to pay for better social care services. How important is taxation in paying for public services? I know what you were saying is that there is very much a felt sense that that's the case. Is that the case? Yeah, we would say that, I mean, taxation forms really the the, the essential component of of funding our public services of course there are other ways the government could raise money through borrowing or etc but you know for us tax is that fundamental sustainable path to really funding our our public services um and you know the health and social care levy is a sort of case in point really where um we think that the Chancellor didn't make the right choice in this case of raising national insurance, but nevertheless, it was quite a clear link there between um, the tax measure and then the direct uh, uh, benefit that it was going to deliver in terms of funding for our health services, social care. And we felt that, you know, it was really important, actually, that given that there was investment in social care and that there, there, there is investment in the health service, we just weren't clear that actually national insurance was the best way to pay for that. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, to what extent do you think that that social bond, I guess, that agreement that is being made between the the government and the citizenry that you pointed out there, um, is being eroded by what's happening at the moment in the kind of in the Sunak scandal? Do you think that this is something that could have a lasting negative impact on people's opinion towards tax because they're seeing it? They're, they're seeing perhaps just how powerless uh, the citizenry perhaps really is when it comes to how these laws are enforced, even by the, the, the very person who sets them. Um, do you think that that's something that could, yeah, as I say, start to kind of break down that really important bond of trust? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, yeah, so I think that it's, it's, it's really important that we need to point out tax avoidance where, where it's happening, and particularly where there are um, power imbalances that allow particularly the wealthy to avoid the rules that we all set democratically. But it's also important to balance that out with with the argument and the fact, actually, that this is about political choices and the state can act to close down loopholes in our tax system. They can act to tax wealth more fairly um, and they can act to really address um, issues such as climate that I mentioned through tax policy. So yes, there are very significant issues in the system, but this is a problem of, 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 of the failure of political actors. It isn't a permanent bug in the system itself or a sort of feature of it. 
interesting. That feels like a really important distinction. Um, I want to go on in a sec to talk about um, how all of this kind of maps onto the pandemic and the people who benefited from it. But just one uh, more specific question on this. So at NEF, we talk a lot about how the government has much more room to borrow money at very cheap rates in order to pay for things like public services. Do you think when we talk too much about tax as a way of raising money, we perhaps forget that we have this ability to borrow or kind of obfuscate that point in the in the broader conversation yeah i think that i think you're absolutely right to raise that and i was working as a political advisor in the labor shadow treasury team under the last leadership and we had a lot of conversations about what the appropriate balance was between taxation and borrowing and you know where how you might sort of introduce each of those tools into your economic plan and you know in the end we sort of decided that the best way really was to think about tax in terms of paying for the day-to-day spending of of the economy so that that sort of ongoing revenue spending that is always going to exist year by year for example as we discussed in, in public services and then to think about borrowing more in terms of those one-off costs that might arise in the economy. For example, investing in big um, capital projects like wind farms or other one-off costs that you that you might want to spend to achieve particular things such as the green transition. So that was my experience of when we were talking about this in the Labour Party, was we sort of made that distinction. But that's not the only way to do it. And obviously, you know, totally accept that there are other people who have other views on this. Mm, okay, thanks. That's super helpful. So uh, focusing in again then, last year, the total wealth of the world's billionaires uh, hit a record high um, during the pandemic, as I said. So some people and companies have obviously you know, done really well out of the crisis. Um, so first of all, who are they? And then we'll dive into uh, the how. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's been actually an unprecedented situation, I think in almost all of human history in terms of the mass of wealth that has been accumulated over the pandemic by the already wealthy. So, um, for example, we've seen the 10 richest men in the world, and they are all men, uh, double their wealth over the period. At the same time, some companies in certain sectors, just purely because of what they do, where they operate, have generated these huge excess profits. So, you know, obviously pharmaceutical companies have done very well, but also people who are involved in the ownership of assets. So uh, mining companies, people involved in retail, the finance sector who who own stocks, for example, have all seen these absolutely incredible surging profits over the pandemic. Um, really through no effort of their own, just because of the way that the governments have been forced to respond to the uh, crisis and and the different measures that have been introduced, for, for example, by the Bank of England. So um, we've actually seen you know, an incredible explosion of wealth at the very top. At the same time, people have really, really struggled uh, who don't own assets already. So, you know, obviously we've had people um, affected by the furlough or, um, you know, affected now by inflation and the rising cost of living. So it, the gap between um, those very wealthiest and, and the rest of us has, has, has really grown over this period. Yeah, and uh, lots of opposition parties and campaign groups have been calling for a, a windfall tax on these companies who've made lots of money, as you say, over the pandemic. Um, could you just explain what that would be and what effect would it have? And is that something that Tax Justice UK is in favour of? Yes, there's been a few few different proposals. Uh, I saw recently that 
Bernie Sanders in the US proposed, I think, a 95% windfall tax on, on company profits over the period, excess profits, which is the, the amount in addition that they've earned over the, through through no for, effort of their own, as I said. And actually, we put out a report um, on pandemic profits in the UK and called for a very similar measure, which was a, a windfall tax on those excess profits here, um, particularly focused on companies. But of course, that isn't really the whole picture. Actually, wealthy individuals have done very well as well. And so there is a question as to whether that you know that comp- that sort of company facing approach could be combined with some sort of wealth tax, which looks at the re- rise in asset prices of of those wealthy individuals, and says, well, you know, actually, that it's right that some of that should be redistributed as we recover from the pandemic. Mm, okay, and aside from businesses. Um, I want to just quickly touch on how people make their money and how this impacts the tax they pay. So during the pandemic, as as we said, the richest 10% of households gained over £50,000 extra per adult on average, while the poorest third gained just £86. So within this broader conversation about the windfall tax and the wealth tax, would those richer households be taxed proportionally on that extra cash? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends sort of how you approach it, really. I think um, there's 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 been calls, for example, for a one-off wealth tax, which just looks at all of the assets people hold, re- minus the liabilities, and then applies a sort of a percentage tax on those on those assets, and that would really capture a lot of the uplift in people's um, housing, for example, or. or or, the, or, the, or their stock ownership or other assets that they might hold. So that would be one way that you could really focus on those wealthy individuals. I mean, you know, really when we're talking about wealth, we're talking about sort of property, we're talking about stocks, we're talking about inheritance. And so, you know, those that, and, and capital gains. And so those are sort of the, really the mechanisms that are available to policymakers now when they're, when they're thinking about how to address this. And and really, a sort of wealth tax would be looking at, at, at one at one or all of those different asset classes, almost, um, and, and trying to apply a sort of levy on those. So, is that just to kind of, I guess, put some kind of frame or narrative around this particular segment that feels like it's coming up for me? It, it, would the thing that is required uh, would it be something that essentially takes a, a a radically different approach to looking at how wealth is accumulated and distributed, which has this kind of extractive or kind of rentier capitalism economy lens, which kind of says that rather than um, taxing people as a percentage of income, et cetera, et cetera, you should actually be looking at kind of different things like where the um, income is coming from, whether it's active or passive, you know, the, the percentage of that income that they have in relation to other people in the community and inequality and things like that. Is that kind of what we're talking about, like a, a shift that's needed in how um, wealth is per- is perceived? And is that something that you think could ever be possible, at least under the current government? Yeah, so you're, you're right that really what we're seeing now, in fact, almost the defining um, point of our economy now is this dis- division between people who own things and people who don't and that that distinction between between those two groups one of whom one of which is much bigger than the other um is increasingly is increasingly the sort of dividing lines that determine our entire economy and in fact lead to lots of structural problems in our economy itself and so for us, that, that's really the question that it's essential that we now try and address in our tax system, which is this runaway 
wealth of those who own things versus the impossibility of those who don't of crossing that divide. And increasingly, it's sort of like, you know, the question of social mobility isn't even, it doesn't even seem, it doesn't even seem like it, that, that that's possible now. You know, for people who are earning the minimum wage, the idea that they would ever own a house seems increasingly just an absolutely distant prospect. So that, I think, is a, is a really interesting way of looking at our economy and something that we really feel at Tax Justice UK that we should be thinking about how the tax system addresses. And as I say, you know, that means potentially better property taxation, better addressing um, inheritance. It means that when the price of assets soars, that our tax system steps in and, uh, and redistributes some of that wealth. And it also means that, you know, not only are we sort of taxing the right things, but 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 we're re- but we're redistributing it in the appropriate ways so that we're putting more funding into public services, we're building council housing. We're really trying to sort of rewire how the economy works so that we close this divide that at the moment is widening. And in terms of your second point around the Conservatives, well actually I'm afraid that what the Chancellor's been doing is almost the opposite. So um by, for example, putting up national insurance, he's been um, increasing taxes on work, so on those people who earn their income going out and getting a wage every day, and at the same time has left taxes on ownership completely alone. So there's been no question at any point over this period um, that, that there would be a significant increase in taxes on wealth. So actually, this government has not only ignored this problem, but actually has significantly exacerbated it through the different policies that have been introduced. Yeah, I mean, it almost beggars belief. I think, you know, as, you, as you're saying this, that even though, you know, some of most of the stuff isn't news, it still feels very shocking that there isn't much more of a kind of uprising around it, around the fact that, as you're saying, they're literally in the moment of a cost of living crisis, increasing wage, increasing tax on wages that people are, you know, which are already stagnating, as we know, while at the same time allowing people to maintain huge uh, amounts of untapped wealth around income that they've not even done anything to to generate. It, it really kind of boggles the mind a little bit. I want to talk about the cost of living crisis specifically because, you know, we know that, as we've said, some businesses and people have done pretty well financially during the pandemic. But at the same time, the cost of living scandal, crisis, whatever we want to call it, is pushing more and more people to the brink. You mentioned their national insurance going up, um, but there's other things to touch on here as well. So council tax, for example, that's rising in lots of areas. Um, how, so just to start with with that, how do you think that that will affect people struggling to afford life's essentials? And is council tax a good way of, you know, is that hike in council tax a good way of raising money for local services that people need? Yeah, there's a there's a huge amount in there, and and it's a really really important discussion. And you know, I was really struck actually by the New Economics Foundation uh, research recently, which showed that 24 million people now are going to be struggling to make ends meet as all of these different changes come into effect. And as as you say, as the cost of energy doubles, as council tax increases, and also you know another part of this context is that people's income hasn't increased. So um, we saw very, very long drop in wages, um, in, in the real value of wages, then a slight uptick. And now we're sort of back roughly to where wages were before the financial crisis. So not only are prices basically spiraling now, um, but 
but but wages have have not increased at all over a very very long period. So that's just a, an important part, I think, of of that question. In terms of how the tax system addresses this, well, as you say, I mean, at the moment, the measures that have been introduced have made it worse. So people who are going out to work and earning these these flatlining wages that I've described have then found themselves paying more international insurance. At the same time, the people who have actually uh, a, are more likely to be able to pay for the rising cost of living, but also have seen very sharp increases in their wealth, haven't been asked for anything else. And then that you've got this question about companies. So, for example, you know, some of the energy uh, companies have been um, booking incredible profits now because of what's been happening in the energy sector. Um, and they really haven't been asked for, for, for any more from, for, from the Chancellor. So we think that, you know, there's a role here, for, for example, for windfall tax on major oil and gas companies. We think there's a role for um, treating all types of income the same, so increasing capital gains tax to the level of income tax, which would um, a bit effectively skim off a bit more of the rising value of assets, and then that could be redistributed back into public services. It raises something like $14 billion, uh, a year. Um, but also, you know, the tax system can't can't do it all. And actually, there's some serious questions here around ownership. There's some serious questions around what is the company actually for? You know, the corporation um, under the sort of prevailing ideology has been really to deliver value for its shareholders. I think there's a question around whether that is a sustainable political position given um, the climate crisis and given also, you know, the fact that we all now accept that companies have a social role as well as a, a narrowly economic one. So I think that what we're seeing raises a lot of different policy questions and the tax system is really, really important in addressing some of those um, in the ways that I've described. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's certainly, it's about the tax system and beyond, isn't it? It's about all these different uh, parts of the the movement that's, you know, the new economy movement that's pushing for different things, whether it's kind of um, the the minimum income guarantee or, or the work around tax that, that you're doing or um, the work around public ownership. Like we kind of all need to be singing from the, the same hymn sheet and really drawing the lines between these different issues because they're all so interconnected, you know, you know as you say. And um, it's only when we're really consciously drawing those links that we're going to be able to come up with some, something that looks like a kind of uh, viable resistance and a viable alternative. Um, just, to, just to wrap up, it, you know, it sounds like we're living with a tax system which penalises working people and isn't particularly fair. So from a Tax Justice UK perspective, what changes do we need to make to the tax system, at least as a start? Yeah, so I mean, we're just circling back quickly onto your point about council tax, because this sort of speaks to, the, to, to your second question. You know, what one thing that we haven't really talked about is actually you know, over the last 10 years, obviously, um, the austerity we've seen in public services and the huge um, cuts to central government funding. And part of the problem with council tax, which is effectively a broken tax, I mean, almost everyone now feels that it's highly regressive and doesn't really um, address the actual value of the property that it's taxing, for example. Um, and that's sort of one symptom, really, of of this wider problem of uh, of a lack of funding for public services. So local authorities have become increasingly reliant on this broken tax to raise revenues to fund other services, for example, their their local social care. And so we've seen this these sort of quite poorly designed taxes increasingly ramped up 
as a means to sort of pl- plug the gaps that have been left by central government, who obviously has a lot more powers to introduce higher uh, progressive taxes, um, you know, for example, around wealth. And so, you know, that leads me to your sort of second question, really, which is, we think that there's a lot of scope now to um, increase taxes on wealth. So to um, do the measures around capital gains tax that I've described. We think that uh, some of the work that's been done around international corporate tax avoidance, so for example, um, there was a, a 15% minimum global corporation tax rate that was introduced. We think that that work could go a lot further. So let's increase that floor to say 21 or 25% for corporations to stop uh, tax avoidance. And, you know, we feel that that companies really who have generated these big profits, as I said, should really then be contributing more into the public purse. So that's sort of another area where potentially there's scope for for some kind of wider windfall tax. And really across those those different measures, that would be a really quite a significant rebalancing of the tax system towards um, people who sort of own assets or who are sort of generating wealth. And, and 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 sort of rebalancing with those workers who are going out and, and earning a wage every day and and at the same time you know that would raise significant revenue and actually deal with some of the issues that we've seen as a result of austerity in our public services one of the things that was really notable actually about the spring statement was the chancellor didn't actually put much more money into public into 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 departments who will be facing those rising costs of inflation that we talked about so you know we think there's quite a lot of scope here actually for some fairly big changes in the tax system that would rebalance it in a much fairer way. Yeah, I mean, I would whole, wholeheartedly agree. And I think, uh, you know, to just to wrap things up, it certainly feels, as, as you're saying, that the, the time is now to really be kind of um, driving this point home that if ever we've had an, an example of just how flawed the tax system currently is, it's this moment right now, the the, co- the coalescing of the cost of living crisis and the Sunak scandal. Like, you know, if we can't win now on this, I wonder when we can. So, um, uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks so much, Tom, for being with us and taking me through that. It's been incredibly comprehensive and really educational. If people want to find out more about Tax Justice UK and, and get involved, perhaps, where can they go? How can they do that? Yeah, so uh, we we have a website, um, taxjustice.uk, and feel free to sort of follow us on Twitter. We're on social media. Um, we also have uh, a, a newsletter from our executive director that goes out once a week that can update people with what's happening in the tax justice space. So really, really encourage people to sign up to that too. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That is it for today's new economics podcast. Lovely listener, but we'll be back in two weeks. If you have enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The new economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, this time produced by Dave Powell and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.